about it when the men were meeting in the back and appreciate him being willing to do that. You know, people have asked Mark Altridge, the man that wrote that song, what was his inspiration and what came about that allowed him to pin those words that we just sung, especially that first stanza. And Altridge's response has always been to people that ask him, I wish I could tell you some great story. I wish I could say I was caught up into the third heaven and they delivered me a scroll with the lyrics on there, but that's not at all what happened. Altrigy says, all I did was I just sat down and contemplated the reality of who God is. And as I thought about him being infinite in all of his attributes, infinite in his wisdom, in his love, and in his knowledge, as I thought about that and wrestled through those things, he said, I took up my pen and I just started writing. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You're beautiful beyond description. Majesty enthroned above. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. Altrigy said, it just overwhelmed me, this reality of who God really is. And so he wrote the song. People in the Bible that encountered God had a similar reaction. They were blown away with who God is and the things that God could do when Moses was on the west side of the Mount Horeb. And he comes to this bush that's burning but not consumed. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5 says, God told him, take off your shoes for the place on which you stand is holy ground. When Isaiah saw the heavenly vision in Isaiah 6 and verse 5, he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And he put his hand over his mouth and he says, woe is me. Isaiah stood in awe. Job says, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 5 and 6. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, the Bible says that he was and is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And yet the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when Jesus lived, there were all sorts of reactions to him. Sometimes people encountered Jesus and their hearts were hard and they pushed back against the reality that stood right in front of them. And they would say things like this man cast out demons by the prince of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Other times, the general populace, they would go back and forth. Maybe he's the son of God. Maybe he's not. You know where he's from. He's from Nazareth and not Jerusalem. John 7, 26 and John 7 and verse 31. But there were times when people heard the things that he said and saw the things he did. Things nobody else could say and deeds that no one else could do. And the Bible tells us they were astonished. They were in awe. The gospel writers tell us that they were amazed. And I really believe that this is the deal breaker. This is what it all comes down to. If you're in the spiritual slumps or a spiritual drought, you find yourself just spiritually going through the motions. The question for you is, are you still impressed with him? Maybe you grew up in the church or around the church and you've heard the name of Jesus more times than you can count. And you would say about your relationship to him, I like Jesus. I even love Jesus, but I'm not amazed by him. And maybe on the other side of this, maybe you're skeptical about Christianity. You haven't come to faith. You've heard what other people have said about Jesus and you believe those things might be true. You're interested. You kind of piddle and paddle around the Gospels. But you would say you're far from blown away. You're far from amazed and far from impressed. One thing's for sure. When you take up the New Testament and you read the inspired eyewitness gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there's one conclusion that people come away with, and that is. They stand amazed. And if we put our eyes and our hearts by faith up against these passages and pages, if we do it right, our response will be much the same. And to the degree that that hasn't happened, we just haven't spent enough time with him. 
This idea of being amazed or standing in awe, it's a reverential respect mixed with wonder and fear. And that needs to be our response to God. We must fight the tendency in all of our hearts to make the things we're doing this morning. The songs we sing, the things that we hear just become commonplace to us. We should do exactly as the song says and stand amazed. So what we want to do in the time we have remaining is just do that. Look at the life of Jesus and notice six things about his life that the gospel writers tell us. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that should cause every one of us to stand amazed of who he is. Let's begin. Number one, we should stand amazed at the miraculous birth. The Old Testament writers were getting people ready for Jesus's coming. And if we read the Old Testament carefully, we should know what to expect when we get to the New Testament. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and verse 2. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. He would be the snake crusher, if you will, that would come and reverse the curse in the garden, Genesis 3 and verse 15. And all of those things are said about Jesus. And you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 and you just start reading. And Matthew 1 down through verse 17 was called the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree. And at first it reads like every other genealogy that you've ever read in the Bible or even in the present. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob gave birth to Judah and his brothers all the way until you get to verse 18. And for the first time, you read something that doesn't read like any genealogy before it or since. It says that Mary was conceived. She conceived of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 and verse 18. And then Matthew 1 and verse 20 says she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. We should stand amazed of the fact that Jesus was brought into this world through a miraculous birth. I know you've heard that more times than you can count. You just realize, well, Jesus was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. But we should remind ourselves that virgins don't have children. And that as much as we might think, well, that's just commonplace. We've heard it all our lives. We've read it over and over again. It's not a common thing at all. The likelihood of that event happening outside of miraculous intervention is about the same probability of you and me laying an egg. It's not going to happen. Not without any divine aid. I know this is the right response to have to the miraculous birth of Jesus because it's the response Mary had. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter one. The angel Gabriel approaches Mary. You remember in Luke chapter one and he tells her she's going to be the one. She's the one that's going to be responsible for bringing the savior into the world. And in Luke chapter one and verse thirty four, her response is amazement and shock. She says, how can these things be seeing? I know not a man. Some translations seeing that I'm a virgin. She says, how can it happen? Verse thirty five, Gabriel assures her the Holy Spirit, the power from on high is going to come over her. The power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. You'll give birth to a son, the Holy One. He'll be called the son of God. Mary, you'll be the vehicle through which God's going to do his work. But stand in awe of the fact that God's going to do it. It's God's doing to bring Jesus into the world. And that should never become commonplace to us. We should stand in awe of the fact that Jesus, who created this world, chose to come into this world and exist with us and to be born. Think about it. I don't know when your birthday is or when you were born, but if you could be born at any time, which would you choose? If you could have been born at any other place, where would you have chosen to be born? We probably shouldn't spend too much time on it because there's nothing you can do to change it. Nothing I can do. When mom pushed or doc pulled, you couldn't call for more time. Out you came. There was nothing you could do to reverse it. Everybody after you and before you could say the very same thing. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world who ever chose to be born. In the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those that are under the law. Galatians 4 and verse 4. Jesus could say what we couldn't say. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Moses could have said, before Abraham was, I was. Or Noah could have said that. But Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Always existing. John 8 and verse 58. What is he doing here? He chose to be born. And we should stand in awe. I believe he was sick when this happened. But in 2010, Steve Jobs wrote himself an email. And in this email, what Jobs was doing was trying to remind himself of how small he was and how much we all depend on one another and how much we need one another in order to live. He sent the email to himself, but it was preserved and later kept. And this is what the email says. Here's what Jobs emailed to himself in 2010. I believe he was sick with cancer at this time. He says, I grow little of the food I eat. And of the little that I do grow, I do not breed or perfect the seeds. I don't make my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use, and I'm protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive conceive of or legislate, and I don't enforce them or adjudicate them. I'm moved by music that I didn't create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I didn't invent the transitor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology I work with. I love and admire my species, living and dead, and I'm totally dependent on them for my life and my well-being. Everybody in the world who's ever existed could write an email like this or something similar, except Jesus. Everything Job mentions, Jesus is responsible for, whether directly or indirectly. He depends on no one else or nothing else for his existence, and yet he came here. Philippians 2 and verse 6 says, though he was enjoying equality with God, he didn't think it a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. My Lord and my God, John 20 and verse 28, became a human being. And as much as that's almost impossible to fathom, the Bible says we need to fathom it and we need to stand in awe of that reality. Before we can talk about what Jesus did when he came to earth, we should stand in awe of the great reality that he even came, that he chose to be here in our presence. It should shock us. That God humbled himself. If you believe the gospel and if you believe that Jesus became a human being, he eventually decided to humble himself down to a single cell to come to earth to save you and me. That can't be regulated just to December on a holiday card or whenever we think about it. We should constantly be amazed and impressed by that reality. When the wise men show up after Jesus is born, Matthew 2 and verse 11, they fall down and worship. They're blown away. The shepherds get wind of it and they spread the news. Luke 2, 17 and 18 and the entire region in and around where Jesus is born. They're amazed. And so are his parents. When you and I consider Jesus, we should stand amazed at his miraculous birth. Now, here's number two. We should stand amazed at his teaching. This started early on for Jesus. When he was 12 years old, he was in the synagogue in Nazareth and he had gone there and his parents go back. Luke 2, 46 and 47 says Jesus is sitting there amongst the teachers and he's hearing questions and answering and asking questions. When Mary and Joseph realize they've left Jesus behind, they come back. Luke 2 and verse 48 says they're amazed at what they're seeing him do and the things that they hear. Jesus blows them away. Later, he grows up and he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and he goes up to do the scripture reading. 
Luke 4, 18 through 22 says he opens the scroll, finds Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, reads it to him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the captives, to set at liberty those that are in bondage. And the people are amazed. He hands the scroll back to the attendant and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. They had never heard or seen anything like that. But there's more. In Mark chapter one, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum in verse 22, we're told they were astonished at his doctrine. You know, the Sermon on the Mount has been called the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And I believe that it is not just because of what Jesus said, but how he said the things he said, the concepts he put together, the things he emphasized, the way he challenged people. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter seven. Look at the end of this sermon and notice what they acknowledge about Jesus and notice their response to Jesus's preaching. Matthew chapter seven and notice the last two verses, verse 28 and verse 29. Jesus starts preaching with the Beatitudes in chapter five. You get to chapter six. Finally, in chapter seven, when Jesus finished all these things, they were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching because he taught them as one that had authority and not like their scribes. What does that mean? Jesus taught them as one that had authority and not like their scribes. The best their scribes could do was to quote each other. Gamaliel says, well, the rabbi Shammai says, or the rabbi Hillel says, Jesus is the only person that could look men and women in the face and say, if you don't do what I'm telling you, you'll never see eternal life. He that rejects me and receives not my words as one that judges him, the words that I speak to you will judge you in the last day. You've heard it said, but I say to you, when Jesus finished preaching like that, they said, we've never heard anything like this. They were amazed at his doctrine and his teaching, and we should stand in awe of it as well. We should be impressed with the things that Jesus taught, the way he taught, and the things that he emphasized. When you talk about the greatest speeches or speakers that have ever lived, there's some variation, but some folks always end up on the list. There's Churchill. There's Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. There's the Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech. A long list of famous Greek orators and the way they communicated. And listen, there have been some great speakers and great speeches down throughout history, but never anybody like Jesus. The Pharisees send guards to capture him. They go there to capture him. They end up in the audience listening to the sermon. They come back empty handed. They say, why haven't you brought him? Never has a man spoken like this man. John seven and verse 46. They were amazed with his teaching. I know you and I weren't there. And so the best we can do is pick up a New Testament and read the words. But imagine being there. Imagine if you had been there and heard the things that Jesus said, not just what he said, but how he was saying those things. You had been blown away. I know that's true because it's been 2000 years and we're still talking about his message. We're still talking about his words. We should stand in all of his teaching. Think with me about some of the times when people heard Jesus teach and they were blown away. He told his disciples. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're blown away. Matthew 15 and verse 29. He goes into the temple and he casts out those that are bargaining and selling. And he tells them that they've made his father's house a den of robbers. Mark 11 and verse 18 says they were astonished at his teaching. The Herodians try to trap him and he shows them the difference between Herod and between God. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they're blown away. Luke 20 and verse 26. They had never heard anybody teach the way that he taught. Nicodemus came at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless God be with him. They were blown away. And if you had been there, it would have been the same way for you. You'd be walking back from your village, nudging your friends and your neighbors, and you would sound like a broken record. 
You would be nudging your friends and saying, I think that's the best sermon I've ever heard. And you'd be right just until you heard the next one. Because they were all the best sermons people had ever heard in their lives. Nobody ever preached like him. And we should stand in all of his teaching. You watch shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent and you've got the judges. They're sitting up there and people come in and they sing or they dance or they rap or whatever their thing is. And occasionally there's somebody that comes in and blows people away. And the judges all sit their mouths agape and they say something like this. You've got a unique talent. We've never seen anybody else like you. You're going places. You're going to do great things. And maybe a dozen or so contestants later, same judges, same mouth open, same statement, because what happens is those individuals are good. But what they thought was unique and couldn't be duplicated was actually just something really good, but not really extraordinary. It was not like that with Jesus. They listened to the gracious words that fell from his lips. Luke four and verse twenty two. There was nobody on his level. Nobody else had ever preached the way that he did and communicated truth the way that he did. And we should stand amazed at his teaching. We should be blown away by the concepts that he delivered and the way that he pushed people and challenged them to the heart. What made Jesus's teaching so attractive? It was his simplicity. He taught them all things in parables and without a parable, he didn't speak. Matthew 13, 34. He'd just be walking along and he could just pick out anything. I mean, literally anything. A certain man had two sons. Behold, the birds of the air or the lilies of the field. The parables were simple enough to be understood and yet challenging enough to pierce people to the heart and cause them to change everything in their lives. It was his authority. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. John six and verse sixty three. He could push people and say, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Jesus was not giving people divine suggestions. Hey, you probably should change your life. Jesus was saying, unless you change it, you'll go to everlasting hellfire. It was his questions. Jesus didn't give people the answers. He invited them into the study and challenged them to come to the conclusions themselves. He would tell a parable and say, which one of these two do you think was a neighbor to him? Or what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Luke, Mark, Matthew 22 and verse 42. Or what's in the law? How do you read it? Luke 10 and verse 26. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. And we should stand amazed. Muhammad, he can't hold a candle to him. And Buddha and Confucius would be in his class. Nobody who has ever taught. I know preachers do the best they can. Wayne Jackson wrote that book, The Master Teacher, because he is. And preachers are said to hide behind the cross and try to preach like Jesus. But here's the thing. Nobody can teach about God like God. And so Jesus has never had an equal. There's never been another preacher like Jesus and there never will be. We should let every word of his sink deep down into our hearts and listen to every one of them. Luke 19 and verse 48 and be changed and transformed by them. I know you read the New Testament, you get to the red letter parts and it's like a rerun. You say, I've seen this one before. I heard this one before. That must never be the case. You've never heard or seen preaching like Jesus. And so we should stand amazed. Here's number three, his miracles. The third thing about Jesus that should amaze us is the miracles he did. I've never seen a miracle and neither have you. Amazing things, yes. Special deeds, yes. We could even say acts of God. We've seen God act in our lives. But a miracle that defies the laws of nature, you've never seen one. And so when the Bible starts talking about them, everybody should sit up and perk up and say, I want to know more about this. How does this work? What was he doing? Even his enemies. Go to John chapter 11 in your New Testament. In John 11, Jesus is at the grave of Lazarus. 
They don't want this to happen, but they can't stop it from happening. And so John 11, Jesus eventually calls Lazarus out. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus does. But notice John 11 and verse 47. These are the Pharisees, not disciples talking. And in John 11 and verse 47, they say, what are we going to do? This man does miracles. We should stand in awe of the miracles Jesus did. Just the sheer volume of the miracles, the amount of miracles he did, they're impressive. If you go to John chapter 21 and look at the last verse in the Gospel of John, John 21 and verse 25. Go there, John 21 and verse 25. John says, Jesus did many more things than this. If every one of them was written down, the world itself would not be able to contain the things written therein. The last thing John tells us is Jesus did a lot of miracles and signs, but listen, he did a lot more. And if we would have wrote them down, you don't have a library big enough to hold the things that Jesus did. You read the Gospels and you say, how many people can he raise from the dead? How many eyes can he open? How many people can he heal? John says, we only told you about some, but it's enough. Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe John 20, 30 and 31. His miracles are impressive. Sometimes the Bible gives details, specifics. Jesus did this, but sometimes the Holy Spirit allows the authors just to speak broadly and generally. At the end of Matthew chapter four, it says Jesus was healing people. What kind of people? The blind, the lame, the maimed. The cripple and lepers. It says people came all the way from Syria and the Decapolis and Jesus touched them and they were healed. Mark tells us in Mark 1, 32 through 34, that one day Jesus was healing so many people. The sun was going down and the whole city of Capernaum came out and Jesus, he just kept healing people. Are you amazed at the miracles that Jesus did? We should stand in all of that great reality. Listen, I told you we've never seen a miracle and you know that. And we could talk about passages that show the miraculous ages ceased. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, or 1 Corinthians 13. And we could talk about the fact that the Bible says after Jesus and the apostles and the folks that they laid hands on, there be no more miraculous. But I think everybody in the world knows if they're honest that the miraculous ages ceased, that there aren't any more miracles. If you just look at the news, if you just look around, you can tell people that even claim to have miraculous ability, they don't have it like Jesus did. There was a church in Redding, California called the Bethel Church, and they claimed to have a school of supernatural, supernatural healing ministry. They've got this school that they say we do miracles. We do the same things that Jesus did. Listen, when COVID hit in 2020, people had different ideas. Some were fearless. Some were frantic. Here's what the church at Bethel did with their supernatural ministry in 2020. They suspended it and shut it down. Listen, if you do miracles, this is the time to show up and show out. What they should have done is just gone through the hospitals and just started healing people. They shut down the supernatural ministry school. And the reality is, as far as the New Testament is concerned, it's always been shut down. That was not the case with Jesus. Jesus did miracles and people had never seen anything like it. I think one of the mistakes we make as we read the New Testament is we just assume, well, Jesus did miracles. And people in the New Testament saw miracles all the time. That's not the way it happened. Turn your Bible to Mark chapter two, Mark chapter two. And notice what happens when Jesus heals this paralytic. Mark chapter two. You remember the paralyzed man is let down by the four friends. First, Jesus forgives his sins. And then he tells him, rise, take up your bed and go home. Look at Mark chapter two and notice the last thing that people say at the end of verse 12. Jesus tells him to take up his bed and go home. And then the Bible says the people in Capernaum at the house say we've never seen anything like this. 
You think people just did miracles every day in the Bible? They didn't. There were selective periods in history where miracles were done. And when Jesus did miracles, people were blown away. The paralyzed getting up. Think about the miracles Jesus did. He opened the eyes of the blind. John 9 and verse 32. Since the beginning of the world, the blind man says we've never heard anybody opening the eyes of a man who's been born blind. He cleansed lepers. Matthew 8, 2 and 3, the leper comes to him. Jesus says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Make me clean. And he does. Leviticus says, don't even touch those people or you're contracted. Jesus reaches out and touches him and Jesus isn't affected. He's completely healed. The paralyzed, they get their strength back. Mark chapter two, Matthew chapter nine. Those that were lame and crippled, Jesus healed them without a problem. When John was in prison, he started having some second thoughts and he sent people to Jesus and he says, hey, are you the one that should come or should we look for another? John says, go. Jesus says, go tell John what you see in here. The deaf have their ears open. The eyes of the blind are open and they can see. The lame are healed. The paralyzed are made strong. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. When you read in the New Testament that Jesus did miracles, it's more than just the show of his ability and power. It's supposed to point to the divine that Jesus is God. Nicodemus came to pay Jesus a compliment. He says, hey, you're a teacher come from God. John three and verse two. Nobody could do these miracles unless God be with them. And what Nicodemus needed to see was Jesus was doing the miracles he did because he is God with us. He was God and is God in the flesh. And the miracles he did testified to that reality. The first time the gospel was preached after the resurrection, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God by miracles and signs and wonders, which he did in the midst of you. As you yourselves also know, this man being appointed by God, according to his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, God raised him up as you see it and as you hear it. Be impressed with the miracles Jesus did. Be impressed with his signs and his ability, because what it points to is his supreme power. If he can do that, we should read it and say, what can he do with my life? If he could walk on the water like pavement, what can he do with me if I embrace his teaching? If he can tell the sea to hush and put it in time out and it obeys him when he tells me to do something, what should be my response to him? It'll change us if we stand amazed. Here's number four. We should be amazed at his sinless perfection. Christians don't want to sin. We've been born again, the Bible says in John 3 and verse 5, but we do. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You obey the gospel because you realize I'm a sinner and without Jesus Christ, I can't be saved. But guess what? Even after you go down in this water and you rise, you're still going to have a sin problem. You will. You'll fight it differently. You've got the power of God on your side, but you will fall short and commit sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 and 1 John 1 and verse 10 says, if we say we have no sin... We're liars. We deceive ourselves and we make God a liar. Every one of us has committed sin or if we haven't, we'll get to the point where we will. Stand in awe of the fact that Jesus stand amazed at his sinless perfection. He never committed a sin his whole life. On one occasion, the Jews are before him in John 8 in one of the most heated dialogues that he has with them. And he just asked them in John 8 and verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Would you do that? Would you get up here and say, hey, who at Lehman wants to convict me of sin? No, you wouldn't. Jesus could. And you know what the answer was? Nobody, because he had never done anything wrong. He says, I've done many good works of my father. For which of them do you stone me? John 10 and verse 32. They had to put their rocks down. He had never broken the law. He never committed a sin. And we should stand amazed at his sinless perfection. 
the way that he went about his life. He never fell short of God's laws and God's commands. And that should just blow us away. We have this saying in our culture and in the world because we know that people are frail and make mistakes. If somebody does something out of the way, if you hurt somebody at your house or on your job or if somebody falls short morally, we'll typically say this once the person is found out and is brought to light. Well, things like that happen because nobody's what? Nobody's perfect. And we should parenthetically include nobody except Jesus. He was tempted in all points, but never committed a sin. The devil tried. And every time he tried, he struck out. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And I know theologians and good Christians and religious people, they want to defend the deity of Jesus. And they say, well, Jesus couldn't have sinned. That's not true. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, there is no temptation. The Bible holds him up as our greatest example, not because he couldn't sin, but because he didn't sin. He could have, but he restrained himself and he overcame. Look at Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. And notice the point the writer makes about our relating to Jesus based on his sinless perfection. Hebrews four and verse 14. Hebrews 4 and verse 14 says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who's passed into the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession without wavering. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us boldly come to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we trust him? Because he never sinned. He never missed the mark. He was perfect. And we should stand amazed, especially as people that are well acquainted with sin. Think about all the ways that you and I sin on a daily basis and how we fall short. John says there are three avenues, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye and the pride of life. First John two and verse 16. How long can you go without sinning? Can you go a day, a week? He never sinned. That would be impressive. The Old Testament says, listen, everybody reaches a point in life when they will. Solomon says in first Kings eight and verse 46, there's not a man on the earth who doesn't. Ecclesiastes seven and verse 20. There's not a just man on the earth who always does what's right and refuses to sin except for Jesus. And listen, Jesus didn't die at two or five years old and get out early. John says he baptized him around 30 years old. Luke three and verse 23. And then his ministry lasted for three more years after that. So 33 years, no sin. What does that mean? It means he never got angry when he shouldn't have. He never had one thought that crept into his mind that didn't belong there. He never lashed out in anger or did anything outside of the will of God. He never omitted to do anything that God wanted him to do in his life and missed an opportunity to do it. He checked all of the boxes. But not only that, he did it every single day of his life. You and I sometimes sin merely through fatigue. We're doing the best we can. And then finally we say, you know what? I've done the best I could. And we break. He never broke. Even when he was suffering, Peter says when he was tempted and when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but he committed himself to the one that judges righteously. He did no sin, no deceit in his mouth. He never lied to make anybody feel good. He always told the truth. When you and I read that, our mouths should stand agape because we know how woefully short we fall. I know about sin because I've studied the Bible, but I also know about sin because I've practiced it a bunch. Jesus only knows about sin because he's seen it in the lives of other people. He's never experienced it himself one time. And we should stand amazed that he was sinlessly perfect throughout his whole life. Am I the only person when I go to pump the gas, try to get it right on the dollar amount just to keep it even? I mean, just right at 35 and 3501. We can't do it. And maybe you've gone bowling before and you roll a strike some of the time, but you don't roll one every single time. Nobody does. Steph Curry can make some shots. He doesn't make every single one. You ever thrown darts? 
and you hit the bullseye, but you don't hit it every single time. The Bible says every single day he got up. He rolled a strike in the lane of righteousness every single time he drew back to throw a dart in the way of holiness. He always hit the bullseye. He never, ever missed. That's amazing. He's perfect, sinlessly so. And we should be blown away by his holiness and by his perfection. And we should stand in awe. Listen, when the devil tempts him in the wilderness, if he gets him to falter in one point, there's no Lord's Supper. There's no redemption. He doesn't just perform for himself. He performs for me. He lives the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. He was perfect. And we should be impressed. Here's number five. And this one probably could have been a sermon all by itself, but we'll just roll all three in this one. okay? so if you're keeping those, maybe this is nine points, Kelly. I don't know. The death, the burial, the resurrection. First Corinthians 15, one through four, Paul says, brothers, let me remind you of the things which you've heard, which you've heard from me and which you've received in which you stand. By the which also you're being saved if you keep in memory what I've preached, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Really briefly, the death, burial, and resurrection should shock us and make us stand amazed. Listen, people died all the time, even when Jesus lived. Peter preached and he said, David is both dead and buried, Acts 2.29. People were buried all the time. In fact, people were even raised in the time of Jesus and in the Old Testament in the days of Elijah and Elisha. But nobody ever did all three. We should stand amazed at his death. Not just that he died, but how he died. The Bible says when he died, the sun refused to shine on her maker for three hours. From the sixth to the ninth hour in our time, that would be from 12 o'clock till three o'clock. The sun didn't shine. Matthew 27 and verse 45. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. People got out of their graves and walked around. It was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. His death was amazing. But it wasn't just that. When he died, Pilate was surprised they bought him the news. And in Mark 15, 44, he says, is he dead already? And then the changes in people. A centurion. A crooked criminal and all of the soldiers, according to Matthew 27 and verse 54, all said this man is the son of God. They didn't watch him live. They watched him die and they were converted. Nobody's ever died like Jesus, but nobody has ever been buried like him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they get together. Joseph, he's a man from the Jewish council. And Nicodemus, you know, he's a Pharisee in opposition to Jesus. They come together to bury him. John 19, 38 through 42. But that's not all of it. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 and verse nine that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, but he's dead. How can he fulfill that one? He literally fulfills prophecy in his sleep. I'll be buried with the rich. He had no control over it. And yet it happened. Nobody had ever been buried like him. And of course, the resurrection. Matthew 28 and verse six, the women get to the tomb and they're told. He's not here. He's been raised just like he said. Come see the place where the Lord lays. John two and verse 19, he says, I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And he did. Thomas didn't believe at first, but once he put his hands there, he said, my Lord and my God. And he was amazed. Listen, we struggle to get up on time when we set our alarm clocks. Jesus died and he got up right on time, just like he said, Luke 9, 22. I'll be betrayed by the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. And then the third day I'm rising from the dead. And those skeptics have scoffed and looked. nobody has ever found his body and they never will. His death, burial and resurrection is amazing. He's the only religious leader in the history of the world that predicted his death and his resurrection and followed through. We might be able to predict our death and our ruin, but we couldn't predict our death and our resurrection. Jesus did both. And that's amazing. Here's the last one. Number six, 
we should stand amazed at his forgiveness. His enemies accused him of blasphemy because he did it. When he heals the man at Capernaum, he starts out by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say in Mark 2, 6 and 7, who is this man that thinks he can forgive sin? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And that's the point. When he's in Simon's house in Luke chapter 7, he says, the one who's forgiven little loves little, but the one who's forgiven much loves much. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And Jesus tells them, yes, I can forgive sin. The fact that he's even willing to forgive one sin should cause us to stand amazed. But the Bible says he'll forgive the sins of the whole world. First John two and verse two. We should stand amazed at the forgiveness of Jesus. He forgave sin on earth. All sin is against God. Psalm 51 and verse four against you and you only have I sin. But Jesus forgives sin in heaven. That he would forgive a man like Saul of Tarsus, who compelled Christians to blaspheme, who took men and women and children and forced them to denounce Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll give him a chance. And that he'll forgive me and all the things I've done and you and all the things you've done. And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, he'll forgive our trespasses and our sins. Do you realize you don't deserve to be forgiven and neither do I? That we don't merit God's forgiveness, that he doesn't have to forgive any one of our sins and that he does that every lie you've ever told. Every lustful thought, the things that have gone on in your mind that God only knows. And he says, you know what? I know the worst things about you. You can fool them. You can't fool me. I know you. And Jesus says, I forgive you. You'll live your life sometimes in ways that spit in my face the sacrifice I gave for you. And yet I love you enough to forgive you still. His forgiveness is amazing. Not just at baptism, but he says, I've got a second law of pardon for you. First John one and verse seven. If you walk in the light like I'm in the light, I'll just keep on cleansing you. Not as a license to do wrong, but to motivate you in love to do what's right. You've never been loved like that. And neither have I. And that is amazing. His forgiveness. It left people spellbound. They walked away thinking, that's it. All of my wrongs have been atoned for. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26 and verse 28. In him, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7 and Colossians 1 and verse 14. He is not common. He's not just like anybody else. He's amazing. Altrogy wrote another stanza to the song that we don't normally sing. And he ends it by saying, Lamb of God, who died for me. And that's really where this all culminates. When people came into contact with Jesus, even if they didn't like him, they were impressed. When they watched him live, his enemies eventually realized if we ever hope to get this guy waiting on him and sin and break the law of Moses is just not going to happen. And they couldn't stand it. Never seen light that bright. And the best they could do was kill him. The light came into the world and the world couldn't comprehend it. But we are those as Christians who have and we should hold it up in our lives and continue to be amazed by who he is. Maybe somebody needs to become a Christian today. Maybe you need to obey the gospel. He is not done forgiving people of their sins. If you believe that he's Christ and you're willing to turn turn away from your sins and confess with the mouth what the heart believes, that Jesus is the son of God and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. You'll rise to walk in newness of life. He'll write your name in the book of life and all the righteousness that was his that we talked about suddenly in a way you can't explain and don't deserve becomes yours. We'd be happy to witness it. We'd be happy to sit down and talk with you and study more with you about our amazing savior. Maybe you're a Christian. And you stand amazed at the way that he's lived, but you're disappointed in the way that you've lived. We'd be happy to pray with you and pray for you. He still forgives even after we've obeyed his gospel. Mike's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.